From the land of the rising fun, it's episode four of the Pure Tokyo Scope podcast. I'm Patrick Macias. I'm Matt Alt. And uh, yeah, this is episode four of our podcast. Yeah, we're rolling. But this podcast is a little different because we've changed the rules. In order to listen, you have to have private medical insurance. You have to uh, be masked 24 hours a day. You have to have a chaperone. And you have to wear one of those cones of shame, like when your dog comes back from the vet. Who set these rules, Patrick? I didn't set these rules. You set those rules. I think you're. I think you're describing how you're. You're actually recording this. No, those are the new rules when you want to be a tourist in Japan. As of yesterday, that is true. Yeah. So, did you see like the the kind of interesting news was when they initially started letting in the very first group of chaperone tourists. One of them actually tested positive for COVID, and they had to kind of suspend the entire trip. So that didn't go very well. But it seems like they are forging forward with this. You know, you're allowed in Japan as long as you have a minder thing for a while. Do you even know like what sections of town they're going into? The the one that I saw looked like they were going into some pretty far flung flung er places. Like it didn't look like they were going to Asakusa. You know what I mean? My guess is wherever like people can shop: Ginza, Harajuku, Shibuya. I'll tell you this: I just went to Kamakura yesterday on an errand, and it was freaking packed with Japanese tourists. So I can only imagine what things are going to happen, what, what things are going to go back like to when foreign people start coming back into the country. I mean, it's wild how many people were out on a weekday there. And they were obviously on tourism things, you know, eating ice cream, you know, getting their manjus stolen by, you know, falcons or whatever you do when you're out in in, uh, in Kamakura. It sounds like fun to me. It was. It was in the sense that it's like kind of a beachfront thing. But I was like... Man, there's already too many people out here. What happens when the when the tourists come back? When's the last time you were chaperoned? Period. Like prom, junior high, potty training? I don't. I don't know. <laughs> it's been a while. Um, even when actually, you know, I remember I was chaperoned on my first trips to Japan because I came with my uh, high school on like an exchange program. I always found a way to sneak out and go toy hunting so it wasn't like really it wasn't we weren't like really shy i think i can't tell if this is like one of those situations where like if you try to break free from the crowd somebody's gonna tase you or like you know how is the how is the chaperoning in forest that's that's the big question that's a good question too i guess we'll find out the hard way uh as we read the headlines of um tourists doing wacky things we should join one of those tours we should go undercover you know, it's just, it's crazy. It's crazy to me that a nation that is suffering like such a decline in its birth rate has so many people out at like every single tourist spot all the time these days. Well, going into our news segment proper, there's a story you brought to my attention that I didn't catch. It ran in the Washington Post about a week ago, and the headline is Japan records its largest natural population decline as births fall. In 2021, Japan recorded its lowest number of births in more than a century, according to government data released Friday. The figure is sure to stoke anxieties over the ongoing implications of population decline, a longtime subject of hand-wringing in the country's policy circles and political discourse. Your thoughts? What What is it about the story that made you um, ping me at four in the morning? So you got to look at this. You got to look at this. Not enough babies are being born, Patrick. Wake up. No, it was. <laughs> this actually has been going on for a really long time. And it's not just limited to Japan. It's actually a sort of feature of of advanced post-industrial societies around the world. I think like statistically speaking, okay, you need to have a total fertility rate of 
2.1 births per woman to maintain a population. And Japan's been under that for a long time. America is under it, is, is sliding under it as well. And you might be surprised to know, actually, in Asia, Japan is one of the countries that's doing better. China actually has a lower fertility rate than Japan does. So this is like, this isn't actually like a Japan problem anymore. It used to be, it used to be spun as one and the Washington Post is focusing on it because they're focusing on Japanese statistics, but it's actually the world's, I don't even know if you call it problem, issue, like thing, you know, it's, if if you're against it, you know, it's tough for me to call it an issue because it's not like humanity is on the edge of dying out or anything. And What's the solution? Like force women to have babies? Like, what are you, you going to do? You know? I mean, when this story first started popping up, you know, when you used to see this in international headlines years ago, it was always like sexlessness. This was always yes. because people weren't getting it on and having babies. And then it became sort of like, this is like an infrastructure problem. This is like, uh, you know, men don't have jobs. They don't get married. Women can't get jobs. So they don't have money and so and so and so. But I don't know. Now you're framing it as like, this is a, a global problem. Well, you see this again and again. You remember this, like in the aughts, like there was this spate of these stories that framed all sorts of Japanese trends as weird. And like some of those were just like journalists getting punked. Like if you remember the bagel head thing where like some some random kids were injecting like saline solution under the skin on their foreheads. And then there was another one about a, a journalist who got uh, kind of punked about this fashions that turned into camouflage that made you look like vending machines in case like robbers were coming. You could like hide in a line of vending machines. It was like all obviously stunt stuff. But there's also things in there like the declining birth rate or like the sexlessness of of young people that, you know, Western pundits and journalists would kind of point at and be like, wow, isn't that weird? And then like starting in the 2010s, especially post Lehman shock, like all of those things started happening in America. All of them started happening in Europe. And it turned out like Japan wasn't weird after all. It was just this kind of like canary in the coal mine for all of the weirdness of late capitalist society. But everyone's very fixated on Japan as being like having like the worst case of this. I mean, right. Elon Musk, whose opinions I'm, I'm fascinated by, by the way, tweeted that uh, Japan would, quote, eventually cease to exist. Why doesn't he just buy Japan? He should just buy Japan. Then he can like, you know, he can set the rules however he wants, you know, more births. But I kind of get why people hyper-focus on Japan because Japan's like this literal Petri dish. It's this island. It's it's out there. So like, and, and it's also the probably the most advanced, uh, it, it, you know, nation out there. Uh, although, you know, you can argue that you know, Korea is certainly, you know, and, and at least parts of China are, are nowhere that far behind. But it's it makes a kind of interesting comparison, you know, and so I get why people use it. But it's it's dangerous because if you focus on that stuff in Japan and you don't recontextualize that, like what's happening in what's happening in Europe, what's happening in Canada, what's happening in you know America, then it starts to seem like an outlier a little bit. I, I actually don't think Japan's birth rate declining is an outlier at all. I mean, our did births go up anywhere during COVID-19? I didn't have any babies that I'm aware of. Sea monkeys, do those count? <laughs> exactly right. Yeah, this Kab- the Kabutomushi larva that I am uh that I'm like gestating in a in a pot on my on my balcony. Does that count? Well, I mean the declining birth rate thing, it you know, some of my Japanese friends talk about it in terms of like this is gonna be bad for like uh you know, companies trying to sell products like you know, toys or like kids stuff or even young people. Like those numbers just aren't here or those markets don't exist 
in a way that they do in other countries. And that's that's kind of the danger for, for as they see it. Well, it's you know, it's true. Like young people, like there was a huge baby boom after World War II in Japan, just like you know there was in, in America. And the baby boomers produced a lot of kids too. And those kids, us, were the people who like all of the chokokin and things that we love about Japan were being sold to. You know, there were a ton of kids. So you had this like vibrant kids culture here. Um, I don't think that vibrant kids culture is necessarily going away, but it's interesting that most of the stuff that is being heavily consumed out of Japan right now isn't really kid stuff at all. It's it's meant for adolescents and, you know, kidults. You know what I mean? Like, I don't know what, what there hasn't really been a major kids anime boom. I'm talking like Doraemon style or like Yokai Watch style. Can you think of one? It's all booms for like Demon Slayer and things like that now. I can't think of like a super kiddie one. I mean, those is perennial like Ampan Man, perennial Doraemon. Well, I guess there's like Pretty Cure. Is is Pretty Cure a thing abroad among like actual children, not man children? Not really abroad. It's like what do they call them? Precure Ojisan, like old dudes who like Precure. There's a few of them out overseas as well. So, well, they're basically bronies, but for like idol girls, I guess. Isn't that? Am I am I mixing metaphors? Okay, <laughs> pretty cure. By the way, for those, and I don't blame you for not knowing what it is. It's a it's a cartoon series, uh, anime actually, uh, that is funded by sponsored by Bandai and features like it's basically idol girls. I think. and it's for little girls. And you go to any toy store, and the girls section is just filled with uh, toys from the Pretty Cure series. And there's a new one, like you know, every year. I've actually never, ever seen an episode of it. Shame on me, I guess. <laughs> but it is it is popular. It's everywhere. Yeah. Why isn't the Washington Post writing about Precure? Yes. Well, maybe Precure has something to do with the decline in birth rates. What, what, do idol, what do idol bands have to do with the decline in birth rates? This is like, a, this is like a David Marx's next book. That's what that sounds like. Okay. To be continued, uh, let's go to a commercial break, and then we will cut to our feature segment. For over 400 years, they've developed their own mysterious traditions. For over 400 years, they've had a strict code of honor and unparalleled standards of respect. For over 400 years, they have terrorized the streets of Japan. Now, they want to control the city of Los Angeles. Determined to leave their mark in blood. Dolph Lundgren and Brandon Lee are ready for a showdown in Little Tokyo. They're two LA cops who are hungry for a little takeout. Dolph Lundgren, Brandon Lee. Showdown in Little Tokyo. Well, Patrick, today is another very special episode. It's all about the books that we loved about Japan from back in the day. And actually, not even necessarily back in the day, although I think we are going to be talking about kind of older books, but the best books on topics of Japan. Am I right? Our favorite books about Japan, of which there are many, but I just wanted to you know, highlight a few that made the biggest impression on me, and I'm, I'm assuming you'll do the same with the ones that made the biggest impression on you. I think I wanted to start out with, uh, to me, the granddaddy of them all, which is Manga Manga, The World of Japanese Comics, uh, by Frederick L. Schott, published by Kodansha 
1983. I checked that out of my junior high school library. That was the first time I read it before I purchased it. And I was like, wow. Yeah, I got it at the library too, at the local library, probably soon after it was published. So I was like 11 years old or something like that. And suddenly, you know, I'm looking at like Devilman or like Ashura, Ninja Buchego. I'm looking at um, Shotaro Ishinomori building a pyramid on top of his roof and drinking sake and admiring the moon. You know, it's it's kind of tough, I think, for, for you young people. It might be kind of tough to believe, but there wasn't a lot of, there wasn't any manga in English available at that time. It's it's kind of crazy Fred managed to get this, this like book published because it wasn't like there was a thriving subculture for it. Like he, he tapped into this, it's not even subculture in Japan. It's like a mainstream culture, wrote the literal book on it, and then sold it in America where nobody knew what a manga was. There were a few experiments to like publish manga in English, like in Epic Magazine. I think Heavy Metal Magazine had like some stuff in it. And um, I think Hadashi no Gen, Barefoot Gen, had that one shot. I saw it, right? But that was pretty much it. Fred was involved with that too, I think. That, that was actually a really seminal one, yeah. And I think that same crew, it's like... Fred and his his friends from high school, um, Alan Gleason, and I think a, a guy named Wayne Lammers, uh, who actually went on, if I'm not mistaken, to do in translation from Manga Gene magazine of those manga. I think that group worked on the Hadashi no Gen and like some Tezuka stuff very early on. They did like a translation of Phoenix that was not published for a long time. I think they were called Dadakai. Was that the name of the band? Something like these guys were, these guys were pioneers. I mean, they, they were like kind of raised with one, you know, foot in Japan and one foot in America. They were kind of bicultural and I don't know, Fred, Fred was like right on the ground there. And when you look back at manga manga, one of the most interesting things about it is how much access he got. Like there's photos of him and like Fred Patton hanging out with like Takao Saito and like Osamu Tezuka and like the Fujiko Fujios and like every major mangaka of the post-war era. Like it's like Fred's there. You know, he's right. There. He's like in the background kind of, you know, uh, interacting with them and talking to them. Yeah, because the book was done by Kodansha, so they were able to give him access and make introductions to everybody and everything. And um, But that book just kind of like blew my mind open because I already knew about some of this stuff just from being like a, an anime fan. You know, I knew about like Lupin and Mazinger Z, but it was really interesting just to see how, how crazy, you know, manga manga really was, just how much stuff there was, uh, how much sex and violence there was, because the book did not shy away from the tough stuff one bit. And also just kind of like tracing the roots all the way back to like, you know, the um, the irresponsible pictures of like the Edo era and then connecting that to like, this is a moment in the early 80s when like manga was at its absolute peak in Japan. Like Shonen Jump was selling like 3 million copies weekly. Well, arguably pre-peak because by the 90s, like Shonen Jump is selling 6 million. I mean, like 3 million already sounded crazy. And then like within a decade, it's selling double that. So Fred's like really riding the wave. It's amazing how the timeliness of that book. I looked at the numbers again this morning and it seemed like in 2020, uh, an issue of Shonen Jump was selling about 1.5 million weekly. Yeah, so. it, it's it's declined. It's, it's definitely declined. But, you know, it's it was just so excessively written. And for a book that came out in 83, which which basically means Fred must have, you know, his, his research actually probably only goes up to 82. It, it's incredibly, feels incredibly relevant today. Like it doesn't feel like, oh, what an old outdated book. Like obviously there's no new manga in it because it stops at the year it does, but 
you know, if you want to get a handle on on what that illustrated culture is and why like Japanese turned manga into what they did, it's 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 still the book on the topic. It's just so amazing. It still holds up as like a great way to figure out or a great way to experience that rise of manga as this thing that could like rival television, rival film as like this cultural force. Well, it's you know the the other thing is it's almost like what I think of as a stunt book in the sense of uh, and what I this is just a, a term I came up with. It's like when the author puts themselves in a situation and then kind of writes about it. And it doesn't seem like one because Fred doesn't really talk about himself in in you know the the first or third or any person in the book. He really gives the, the spotlight over to the creators, but he was there, like he was on the ground. There's like a photograph of him in like a shonen jump, like you know printing factory. There's like you know there's there's he's talking to all of these people. He's like going to their houses. That's where that picture of Ishinomori Shotaro came from. So even though he, by name, doesn't really appear in the book, you know, he lived this shit and it really shows in the writing a lot, I think. So to make this a Fred shot twofer, I think there's a, there's another book that, uh, by him that you wanted to spotlight. <laughs> well, this is, since we're talking about books that, that really influenced us and I, I can't let this one go by, it wasn't nearly as wide, widely read as manga manga, but it's. Fred's follow-up to that book, which is called Inside the Robot Kingdom. And I was, who are we kidding, am a robot-crazed kid. And so when this book came out, I thought I was going to lose my goddamn mind. It's like full of Japanese industrial robots. It's like he goes to the Bandai facility and like Takara, he's like, He's into, there's this amazing photograph in there where like these, the guys, these two dudes who look like the Japanese version of like, your granddad are holding Ultra Magnus, like they're the engineers who like designed that transformer. And once again, he like dives into these. I, you can't call them subcultures; they're 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 just cultures of like industrial and like why Japan loves robots so much. And it like it it goes all the way from like factories to toy companies to like uh, he even like weaves in like Buddhism and animism and stuff like that, like the kind of religious aspects of robots. And that that was another huge huge influence on me as a kid. Kind of like when when your when your book Tokyo Scope came out, I'm like, wow, you can write about stuff like this. You know, you, you can write about stuff you like. I don't remember reading Robot Kingdom. I I remember kind of maybe checking it out of the library, but I don't remember connecting with it the same way. Like you know, like you're you're Team Robot, I'm Team Kaiju. So maybe that's yeah. No, it's it's definitely a little. I don't want to say heavier. You know, Fred's a very you know engaging, down to earth writer, a very accessible writer. But you know, when when you're when you're talking about like interviewing people at Fanuc, the the Japanese like factory automation company, it's obviously not going to be as thrilling as like sitting down with like you know Rumiko Takahashi or like you know Takao Saito. So you know, there's that. But um, it's an amazing, amazing look into Japanese robot culture of the '80s. And if you're into toys in particular and you haven't read it, you really, really need to check it out because there's a chapter on the toys that's still unbeatable in there. Okay, so my second pick is a book that was published a year after Manga Manga in 1984, and it's called Behind the Mask on Sexual Demons, Sacred Mothers, Transvestites, Gangsters, and Other Japanese Cultural Heroes Yes, by Ian Baruma. Yes, yes. And I must have read this one in high school. And um, I guess maybe I read the back of the book first, and that's what made me want to read it. And it's here, I'm going to read the back of the book because it's so awesome. After reading this book, you will never look at Japan and the Japanese in quite the same way again. For you will see Japan as more than a land of Toyotas, transistors, tea ceremonies, and flower arranging. You will understand it also as a land of people with dreams and fantasies and a morality 
and an immorality all their own. Behind the Mask is an exploration of that Japan, as expressed in its pornographic movies and comic books, massage parlors and strip joints, popular TV shows and entertainment idols, and other manifestations of Japanese attitudes and activities in the realm of the psyche and the senses. So it's a little sensational. Yes, just a wee bit. Well, Bruma is a really, really interesting character. He, he came to Japan in, he's Dutch, I believe. And he came to Japan in the seventies and like interacted really deeply with like the avant-garde uh, performance art, like theater world. And he's written, he wrote a uh, recently published recently, like in the last 10 years, a memoir about that. That's, that's really interesting. It's like this kind of, he was there kind of at the intersection of the collapse of the student protest movement and the rise of all of this kind of outs. I don't want to say it's outsider, but people who are transforming traditional forms of art into kind of more cutting edge forms of expression. You mean like, like the Shuji Teriyama gang or like Buto and those Exactly. Guys? Buto, Teriyama, Shuji, like all of that kind of stuff. And he was actually like, I think he actually performed in like Teriyama's troupe for a while as like a, a foreigner. And so he has this really interesting background too, like Fred, where he's living here and, and writing about it. It's not some kind of, um, you know, outsider. He's obviously he's not Japanese, but yeah, that's a great book. What, what is your, what's your favorite part of that book? I, I can think of the photos. I don't know if there's a favorite part of it so much as it's just, this book is really instrumental in just sort of like opening the doors to like Japanese, I say like low culture, not high culture, but I say low culture. Um, and just, connecting that to like Japanese mythology or Japanese folktales and how a lot of those things really kind of celebrate outsiderdom. You know, a lot of these things are, they're not about, um, you know, like uh, the strong will prevail. It's always kind of like the sympathy for the underdog is a big current you see in, in Japanese pop culture. And this one like really goes low. There's, there, there is a lot of stuff about pink movies and strip shows and Takarazuka and, and gender. And I'm not sure how this book plays now. There's kind of a tendency to kind of really connect everything to Shinto to try to find an analogy, you know, for everything, even like, um, like a Torasan movie or something like that. But as, as far as just like opening the door and it, it, like showing how crazy Japanese pop culture was in, in all these different areas. Well, I, I think, I think it's also, you know, in, in to contextualize it a little bit at that time, like, especially in the sixties, the, like Japan, the, the majority of people who were interested in Japan, I think were interested in kind of high pursuits, like, you know, Zen, Zen Buddhism, Kurosawa and stuff like that, or like, you know, flower arrangement, you know, martial arts and things. And so it was kind of unusual for foreigners to interact with more, I mean, I, for lack of a better word, degenerate <laughs> subcultures, like pink movies and things like that, that kind of low culture that you're talking about. So, and Fred is, Fred is part of that too, you know, it, it, not in the sense of, of being into pink or, you know, avant-garde uh, theater or anything like that, but manga was seen as trash culture in the seventies and eighties. I mean, my own wife was like, you know, her parents basically forbid her from reading manga when she was a girl growing up. Like it was seen as bad, bad, bad stuff. So the idea that you'd be like a, a grown man and a foreigner, like you're fluent in Japanese, you're culturally fluent and, and choosing to focus on this, you know, there's a, uh, th that was really kind of out there back then. You know, now we sort of celebrate low culture. Arguably low culture has become the new high culture in a lot of ways. It's cool Japan, isn't it? 
pretty much. That's what the government would have us believe. Okay, so do you have another book on the pile? On that, I do. Uh, but just really quick to connect to that one, your book choice reminds me of another one by Nick Bornoff called Pink Samurai, which is obviously Nick's the thinly. This came out around the same time, and it's all about the Japanese sex industry and. Like it goes down into very granular detail about the kind of things you could purchase on the street and, you know, the kind of experiences you could have. And it wasn't some kind of sleazy guidebook, but it was obvious that the author had done his research in these spaces. And today it's kind of, I think academics kind of look down their nose at it because it is very male gaze. It's very like guy in Kabukicho, you know, writing about what he's experiencing, but it, it, it's a scene. It's it's real. Like that's a real culture, and and his writing is very much a part of that. So if you like Burma, you should definitely check out Bornoff and 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 that book as well. Why well, you got to make everything dirty, man? Well, see, now I'm going to go from this, and now I'm going to get like punched in the face for for bringing this up. Uh, you know, one of my favorite books in 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 recent years, and one that was a huge influence on me is a book by the name of Embracing Defeat by a professor named John Dower. And that is a book that is set in the immediate years after World War II and talks about how the Americans came in and how GHQ basically rebuilt the Japanese government from scratch, you know, and compelled them to adopt an American constitution. And this wasn't at gunpoint. There was a lot of negotiation going on. This was, there was, I mean, it was at gunpoint. They were under occupation, but uh, it's very interesting because he's very down in the trenches. He's on the ground. It's a very people-driven thing. And this is actually one of the really key things. It's like if you're – the difference between a really readable book and one that's actually more of a slog is a book that focuses on people. That Books that focus on people are always more interesting to read than ones that are just about like data and facts. So all of the books we're talking about right now, I think, are ones that do focus on people. And – even if you're not somebody who is deeply into immediate post-war history, I really recommend uh, Embracing Defeat because it just sets the... If you don't understand how Japan got rebuilt after World War II, you don't understand how any of the stuff from student protests to the pop culture that that we consume today got made. So that's a really amazing book. I haven't read that one. I'll, I'll, I'll put that on my... Um my library checkout list. Uh, I guess my last one for this episode is something that's kind of similar. It's called A History of Tokyo, 1876 to 1989, from Edo to Showa, The Emergence of the World's Greatest City. Uh, it's by Edward Seidensticker. And actually, this is a, a collection of two books that he wrote um, called Low City, High City, Tokyo from Edo to the Earthquake in 1983, and Tokyo Rising, The City Since the Great Earthquake, 1990. Um, I think I started reading these two volumes when I started first seriously coming to Tokyo around 2005 or so. And these are kind of like, it's a biography of Tokyo. Right. Uh, a historical biography from the Edo era all the way to what was then the present day. And it really, really does this amazing job of showing how Tokyo was kind of defined by these two huge disasters, which was like the, the great Kanto earthquake of 1923 and then the uh, the Allied bombings in World War II. And before and after that, how, how the kind of energy was always shifting from one place to another, like from Asakusa to Ueno and then Ginza and Shinjuku. It really kind of made me fall in love with like Shitamachi, kind of downtown culture. Like I wanted to go to these places he was writing about 
and just kind of look at these old buildings and really kind of explore the city in, in that this kind of time machine sort of way. And since uh, Sidesticker was a he was a translator, he actually was the first guy who translated uh, Tale of Genji. Yes. So the book is filled with quotes from like literature and quotes from writers like Kafu Nagai, and it's an amazing introduction to those guys as well, who I probably never would have been exposed to because I was too busy reading manga. Um, and the one thing that's really funny about that is it's clear that like everyone's been complaining about the loss of like the good old Tokyo for like hundreds of years. Yes. Like it's just yes. a nonstop, you know, kind of, uh, I sure do miss the good old days when things around the city were fun. It's, you know, one of the things I picked up from that book is how much more European influenced Tokyo, like elite culture was before the earthquake of 1923. Like Ginza was hugely Parisian in its the way it was envisioned and the way things were going. There were all these like street cafes and things like that in the 1910s and 20s, and that culture pretty much got wiped out after the earth after the earthquake happened. And then like basically all of the assholes took power, all of like the nationalists, all of the racists, all of the very bad people. It's it's kind of mimicking a little bit what's been happening in America after you know we've suffered kind of economic disasters and and you know biological disasters now and then kind of bad people come in to to take charge of things and and change the country in a bad way. So there's also like kind of when you read books like High City Low City they aren't they are of course about old Japan but they're also really valuable lessons in there about things that we're going through right now. I could dig it. And uh, Side and Sticker died a few years ago. He, he published a memoir, I think, uh, towards the end of his life that I haven't read, but I, I definitely yes. want to check it out. Yes, I believe he did. And I think I even read that. Yeah, it's it's really interesting because, you know, people like him interacted with Japan in such a different way than than we do. You know, these are people like my first Japanese teacher you know, who I dedicated Pure Invention to. Like they were, they came over to Japan on the very first boats out of America and like, it was destroyed. There was nothing here. Everything from Yokohama to Tokyo was a cinders. And there was no pop culture or anything. These people were just desperately trying to live. So the the, the kind of interactions you had with the people and, and with, with the culture were much different than we have. I mean, completely different. <laughs> so it, it's really interesting to see how these people saw Japan in comparison to the way we do. The cooks are very entertaining as well as very personable. The prices are great. I've eaten here 14 times and it's really exciting. I love the food. I've never been entertained and served such good food at one time. I'm really enjoying the atmosphere here. The other people at the table make it so much fun. I've never eaten here before, but it is really great and I really enjoy it. It's very entertaining. The portions are huge. You never leave hungry. North Alabama's choice for fine Japanese cuisine. Shogun Japanese Steakhouse on University Drive. So this takes us to uh, a listener question that we got on Twitter the other day, which um, is related to the topic at hand. So I thought we could slide this one in there. Uh, listener Eric Fleenor asks, any other books currently only available in Japanese that you would think would be interesting to see translated over to English? Did you have an answer? I do. I actually do. Do, do you have any before I, before I launch into this? There's a book uh, published in 2008 called Learning from Akihabara, the Birth of a Personopolis by Kaichiro Morikawa. It was kind of the first serious sociological book just focusing on Akihabara. And there's a lot of really mind-bending observations about how anime culture evolved and was kind of, you know, leaping out of kind of 2D space and into 3D space and sort of changing geography 
Uh, so, and that's a book that I actually had parts of it translated and you can find bits and pieces of it online, but it's a really important book that I would love to see someone do, uh, in English. Well, the, the good news is more and more books are actually coming out. Like, you know, even, even like really weird ones, like an introduction to arrow manga that came out from like the J lit library, I think recently, or like Hiroko and I got hired to translate like an introduction to yokai culture so these kind of really deep cut books that that weren't coming out so much in times of old uh are coming out more but yeah like the publishing industry is so huge here that there's just such a stream of books you can't see them and one that i read when i was researching pure invention that i thought was really amazing is this book called the 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 japanese title is so sozo ganen 1968 which basically means it's like 1968 year zero, like 1968, the year everything started, kind of something like that. And it's a book that takes the form of a conversation between a science fiction novelist named Kiyoshi Kasai, who he, his his books got turned into like a 90s anime called Vampire Wars that Manga Entertainment put out years back. So it's a conversation between Kasai and Oshi Mamoru. Mamoru Oshii of Ghost in the Shell fame. And these guys are just talking about what it was like growing up in the 60s. And, you know, you I learned from that book just how kind of involved Oshii was with the student protest movements. You know, he's like literally trying to go like man the barricades. He's like a high school student and talking about how back in 1968, no kid wanted to become a rock star. They wanted to become like a student radical. Like that was what everybody aspired to back then. And like how, you know, dangerous and kind of violent things were on the streets. And it's just really interesting reading these, these two guys kind of experiences. Like we know them, we know these people as like, you know, our anime creators, you know, kind of pop cultural creators, but you know, there's a lot of politics in Oshi's work in particular and reading that book, uh, 1968 year zero really, uh, I think kind of shed, a light on that for me. That was really interesting. I think there's probably a market for that in the States. So that's a cool listener question. I'm going to sneak in one more here. Uh, John Snow asks, what's the best thing to bring with you to drink at Ikebukuro Westgate Park? Oh, that's a good one. Oh, well, what do you, what do you say? What do you say? I know what I'm going to say. I think it's one cup, baby. One <laughs> cup or nothing. That's the, that's the tradition. See, I, I, man, I'm just not a sake drinker. You know, I, so for me, it's always going to be the Suntory highball tall boy. The Kaku highball. The, the Kaku highball on the top. God, I love those. They're like, it's not it's not great whiskey. It, it's probably not even whiskey since they're canning it like that. But it's those things, man, those things go down schmove. Yeah, I hope someday to uh, crack open a tall boy with Jon Snow over at Ikebukuro Westgate Park. Have you been there? Have you ever been to Westgate Park? It's like a human zoo. It is, weir- it is one of the weirdest people watching spots I've, I've ever not, been to not in my recently. entire life. I mean, Ikebukuro is just kind of a weird watching spot. I mean, it, it's it's like Ikebukuro feels like it's about 15 years years behind the rest of Tokyo in a lot of ways, in ways good and in ways kind of creepy, wouldn't you say? I would say so. So uh, that, I think, takes us towards the end of our episode. Next time, we're going to talk about Japanese TV, what it's like being on Japanese TV. On on Japanese primetime TV. That's what we're going to be talking about. Not Saturday morning TV, not Sunday morning TV when they show Kamen Rider and the latest Super Sentai shows. No, I would say, yeah, the, the, the way I would frame this the way I would frame this is what's it like to be on a, as make an appearance on a Japanese primetime TV show. 
Uh, we've all seen it. We've all seen foreign people doing it. It's terrifying. Tales from the set. The truth can finally be told. And we're going to tell it to you next week. So in the meantime, thanks for listening to our show. Feel free to leave any comments for us on Twitter. That's about it. Thanks for listening.